I've seen American flowers all across this land from the banks of the Shenandoah along the Rio Grande. Do not Welcome to episode 20 of the Voices of Wisdom podcast. I'm your host, Tony Caldwell. Today I'm in conversation with Jonathan Martin. Jonathan is the author of two critically acclaimed books, Prototype and How to Survive a Shipwreck, with a third book coming from Zondervan next year. He holds multiple theological degrees, with his terminal degree being from Duke University. As a speaker and preacher, Jonathan has spoken at churches, universities, seminaries, conferences, retreats, and events all over the world. Standing at 6'5", with a bold, intelligent preaching style, Jonathan could be quite an intimidating figure. But his words and his work are infused with such a tenderness and vulnerability that it's no surprise that in addition to a general readership, his work, written and spoken, finds resonance with those deconstructing from religious beliefs, as well as those healing from church wounds and those who wish to continue to grow and bloom across the lifespan. Jonathan stands at the intersection of theology, spirituality, and mental health with a deep commitment to justice. His work has been featured in the New York Times, The Atlantic, NPR, Newsweek, Vox, Sojourners, Huffington Post, Relevant Magazine, and several scholarly journals. Jonathan currently is lead pastor at The Table in Oklahoma City, and his podcast, The Zeitcast, is wildly popular as well. I think that you'll find in Jonathan a real sense of authenticity and a compulsion towards love. And I hope that this helps you to access those qualities in yourself as we all work together to, in the words of our friend Shane Claiborne, build a new world in the shell of the old one. And without further delay, here's my conversation with Jonathan Martin. Jonathan Martin, welcome to Voices of Wisdom. Thank you, Tony. It's an honor to be here on the podcast. I love the podcast, and you know I love you, so it's uh, great to be able to talk with you anytime. I'm so glad to be here. Absolutely. Uh, I think you already know this. You're definitely one of my favorite people. I uh, consider you one of my best friends, so I um, always love our conversations, but it's cool that people get to eavesdrop on this one. Yes, you're certainly one of my best friends, and I talk about you everywhere I go and talk about your work and recommend you to people and so, yeah, I just feel like it's always good for my soul. So I feel like this is almost cheating because uh, I feel like even doing a podcast with you will probably end up just being some other form of free therapy for me somehow, <laughs> even when you're asking me questions in this way. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, the benefit's mutual. Um, <laughs> I want to start out by asking you how you're experiencing the world today. <laughs> well, um, how I'm experiencing the world today uh, is certainly a kind of sensory overload, um, which is interesting, I think, because on the one hand, it feels like there's so much less of face-to-face interactions. And in terms of our, you know, our table community, all that's online right now. But in some ways, I guess it feels like to be shut down in one area means and to be online that much for me means a whole lot more noise in my head. So I think um, 
it does feel like a good bit of uh, chaos. And I think, you know, whenever I experience the world as chaos, then that means inevitably I'm kind of flitting back and forth between, um, which I, which I guess is right for chaos, even in terms of thinking about biblical images of chaos. There are moments, and I have a lot of these, where it feels disorienting and frightening, and I don't know what's going to happen next, and that can scare me. And there's also, it feels like an equal number of moments where the world feels really exciting, and it feels like there are all kinds of new possibilities that are opening up and new connections that are being made and it can be kind of exhilarating too. So, uh, so I just think that that's just kind of the nature of chaos is kind of going back and forth a lot between kind of the exhilaration of new possibilities and yet also the exhaustion, you know, of constantly having to, to process a lot of pain and a lot of transition that feels like it's kind of unending. Hmm. Yeah. You know, a lot of people seem to lean on you, I guess, personally uh, or in person and then also digitally to sort of be a voice that that speaks to some of this. So um, I think I hear you saying, yeah, I'm human, too. I'm 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 speaking from experience. Uh, And uh, I I think that's why a lot of people uh, seem to to look to you, because I, I, I see that, you know, in some ways you you take some pretty difficult stances in just in, in my view, just kind of sticking to who Jesus seems to be Mm. in scripture. You know, um, I see where, you know, the afflicted seem to benefit from your writing and your speaking. Um, and the comfortable seem to, to get upset with you, Mm. uh, periodically on both sides. Um, and, I just wonder if you could speak a little bit to what it's like to be in that space where you you sort of catch hell from people on both sides of any given debate or agenda and, and to keep, you know, sort of what the Buddhists call a, a strong back and an open front, you know, to to stay soft in the middle, but also be able to to keep walking and keep doing the work. Wow. <laughs> That's such a great question, Tony. I mean, you know, um, I think I'd want to say, first of all, that um, on my on my end, I never want to presume and I don't presume that just because I'm getting shot at from any or all directions, that that somehow means that um, I'm living like Jesus or something. I thought that could get that could be really dangerous. But it is that is kind of a fascinating phenomenon for me sometimes though too because I do feel like what it does mean for me to aspire to be a follower of Jesus which is all I ever could say about that is you know something I would aspire to is that I think that does mean you you have to keep your heart tender I think that does mean mean engaging the world with a certain kind of vulnerability so um it does it does get really complicated because I feel like part of the essence of Jesus for me is, you know, what I see of Jesus in the Gospels and even what I understand about Christianity in its most basic form is I feel like it's it's a life that's more shaped by practices than it is beliefs. And it can't be about rigid ideology because the moment it's about ideology, 
then you have people who are inside and people who are outside. And so I feel like we always have to resist that kind of either or thinking, though it's incredibly tempting to do. And especially in the moments when you feel excluded or rejected by somebody. I mean, of, of course, you kind of want to form your a, a, a street gang somewhere else and say, well, well, here's our people. And, and it's kind of, you know, and it's, it's it becomes far too easy then to kind of um, treat the people where you came from with the same kind of tactics or the same kind of disrespect or whatever. So, and I, I feel like if you are aspiring, though, to be a follower of Jesus, you just kind of don't get permission to do that. So I, I think part of what's um, what, what the ongoing challenge for me is that that just means it's never static. You're never staying still because I just think, and I do, I do see that in the Jesus, the gospels. I see it in the story of scripture in general, the God of the Exodus, who's, who's always on the move is that you have to engage people and engage the world in a really dynamic way, which involves keeping your heart open, which involves getting hurt, you know? So, uh, and I don't like that, you know, because I just, I want to find ways to harden myself, protect myself a little bit better, would love to have a little bit more insulation. But I think part of what it is to go that Christ-like way is to keep yourself vulnerable. And even when, if you feel like someone from uh, whatever camp treats you like an enemy. I mean, I often think about how, like, especially like in the Christian life, the um, the only reason we'd ever have to identify an enemy is to figure out who to bless. I mean, if there are enemies, we bless our enemies. Like, there's so, you know, there really aren't uh, insiders and outsiders. So that doesn't really change anything. And if someone, so I don't know. So I just think like trying to keep that posture, trying trying to retain that kind of softness, just requires constant reevaluation and soul work. And I know I don't get it right all the time, but it just feels like um, the, the space I'm supposed to live in. So I, so I keep trying for that. Mm. Yeah. I love that you put emphasis on the fact that getting hurt is just a part of it because that's, that's just a part of relationship in general. Yeah. Yeah. There's something particularly painful about when that plays out in the context of religion or, or maybe when the harm is done in the name of God in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I also hear you saying that that's, that's just part of how things play out in this life. And, um, and, you know, I love the fact that you're not shying away from that. And, you know, I, I think sometimes in our tradition, we, which is really weird, you know, so, you know, you take a tradition like, uh, like Buddhism that, that puts an emphasis on suffering in a, in a very real way and how so many manifestations of our uh, faith tradition don't, even though we have the suffering servant man of sorrows tortured on a cross as like the main um, character, you know, and, and it's so odd that, and, and maybe some of, some of that's American Christianity. I really don't know. Cause I, I don't, I don't have enough experiences of, Christianity and other forms to compare it to, but I'm wondering if there's something Americanized about um, our aversion to pain and and the way we sort of pay, uh, pray pain away um, and and that sort of thing. And I'm just wondering, like so far in your journey, um, what's helped you get to that place of um, 
embracing, allowing, and and accepting the fact that pain is a part of this journey? Hmm. Uh, also, that's such a great question, Tony. I mean, I think I think the honest answer to that is that I don't think I've really felt like I had a choice. I think that what a lot of people label as faith feels to me a lot more like denial. And I don't think denial works for long. I think that I think there is something very American about that kind of religion. And so in that regard, it feels good and right to differentiate that. But at the same time, I'm also very aware that American Christianity sort has a way of uh, Western Christianity has a way of really infecting the whole world, just like a, a lot of things that uh, out of America gets exported. And um, I do think often that what that looks like is in the name of believing hard, in the name of having faith, it does look a lot like just burying your head in the sand and denying reality. And I think what happens is, I mean, I've tried that <laughs> plenty of times and a whole lot of ways. I'm sure I'm still trying that sometimes in ways I'm not even aware of. But I think what I, what I find consistently happening is that it just doesn't work. And I think somewhere along the way, um, what I slowly started to come to see is that somehow in trying to deny my pains, in, in trying to deny reality, that for someone who does aspire to be a follower of Jesus, that there seemed to be something of, of denying the spirit in that, that it seemed to be, you know, not mm-hmm. just kind of denying a negative emotion or fighting Satan or something like that, but actually denying the work of the Holy Spirit. Because I think that pain is so crucial in terms of the way that it tenderizes us, that it opens us up to, um, to, to see others in the way that we're supposed to see others, even to, if it's channeled rightly, to see ourselves um, with compassion, the way that we're supposed to. And I think you know, it, like, well, even talking about those images of Jesus, the suffering servant, this is a deeply, deeply Christian way, really, of looking at the world. So I think the more I was able to kind of come to slowly see that God is actually, and that, which is not the same thing that God is the one who authors our pain or our trauma or anything like that, but th- rather that there is a way, actually, that uh, God is at work in and through our pain in ways that are redemptive. And it's just part of the full range of human experience. And, uh, and then again, just, well, just seeing the fruit of my life, uh, when I have tried to just kind of repress and deny and to see that that wasn't good, that wasn't healthy for me and for others. I think that's, uh, so for me, it just kind of felt like it wasn't really a choice that pain has a way of rising to the surface and pushing its way to the top, uh, no matter how hard you might try to kind of keep it down that 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 only works for so long. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's, I mean, I think that's, that really highlights what I mean when I talk about you as someone that I see is attempting to follow Jesus, not just espouse Jesus, Mm. Uh, because it does seem like, you know, following Jesus, um, the imitation of Christ, if you will, would, would involve absorbing, the pain that the world dishes out without retaliating. Mm. And that, I don't know about you, but for me, that's really hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> Especially the more it hurts, uh, you know, the closer the person who dishes it out, the, the more, 
you know, I think I would probably want to retaliate. So that kind of brings me to question. I know a lot of people who are going through, um, what we kind of loosely call deconstruction these days. I, I think that word's not really adequate because there's so many people going through so many different processes, depending on their, their particulars and their circumstances and just kind of where they are in age and geographically and gender and, and so many other considerations. Um, but for people who feel as if they don't belong where they used to find their sense of belonging or really where, where they developed as a human, really like maybe in a community from birth until whatever they age they are now in the sense of, did I ever really belong there? And sort of questioning, not just all their beliefs, but really uh, their identity as a human and their place in the, the culture they came from. And, and if they left that culture where they belong in the larger world, uh, I'm wondering what you might have to say for people who are kind of sitting with the acute pain of being in that place right now. Mm. Well, I hope this isn't cold comfort because I think when you are sitting in that place of acute pain, that it's really, I mean, I don't, part of what I think our individual pain and suffering does to us is it can cause us to go really, really inward and to feel isolated and alienated from anybody else's experience. And I get that, you know, that when you're really hurting, that it's difficult sometimes to be really awake to the ways that other people are hurting, because sometimes the reality of your own pain is such to where you can only care so much about that when when you're when, when you are kind of sitting in your own. But I just think I would really want to say, I, I would just hope that people would realize just how not alone that they are. And I think that not only in the sense that, Tony, I know people like us, we're having these conversations with people every day who are going through these kinds of shifts and transitions. But my sense is, and I feel like this is happening in real time in such a way to, to where I don't, you know, I have no idea how or if the data would bear this out in the last few months, but I sure think it will. I feel like the pandemic is surely accelerating these realities because I think if people felt like they didn't belong before, <laughs> that increased isolation and uh, just the strangeness of this season is surely for everybody stirring up the things that were already present in us. <laughs> so <laughs> even that whole idea of whatever pain that's been there that we might've been trying to push down, I think any time, well, you know, it's it's like the, the the times in my life, for example, that I've gone to a Catholic retreat center and taken a week or so on a silent retreat. It feels like your soul just kind of vomits, like everything just kind of comes up. And I think right now, collectively, we're going through a time like that to where even people that might have still been trying to convince themselves that they belong somewhere where they don't belong are having a hard time denying that now. So I would just want to, if that's any encourage, just that you're that you're not alone. And I think part of for all the things that can feel really frightening about the moment that we're in, I think one of the things that's most exciting is I also think that this is a moment where all kinds of new communities are being negotiated and explored. <laughs> and I know a lot of that's happening in digital spaces in the moment. I think ultimately they'll you know that'll happen in physical spaces too, 
But I do just, it just seems to me that it's kind of an optimum time for people to, to start to find each other and that they are. And that um, as we're able to find other people who really do share the same trajectory, the same kind of story, they understand exactly where we come from and exactly the kind of weird thoughts that we have or theology that we have and all the quirkiness that goes along with that. And just to know that you really aren't alone in these things and that there are just untold people. And I, and I continue to be fascinated because I hear I hear from people actually uh, really from all over the world right now, because I do think this is global and not just an American thing that's happening. Um, so yeah, just to, if that's any encouragement at all, just that you're, that you, that you're not alone. And I think ultimately what is happening is that slowly but surely people who have not felt like they've had a people are finding their people. And I do think there's a lot of hope in that. Mm. Yeah. And, and hopefully finding some relationship to their internal world where they, they are their own people um, before becoming a part of a collective again, in some way that's, that leans too heavily on the collective. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I'm thinking about, um, you know, basically in order to be in a beloved community, you have to be beloved and that Mm. has to come independent of community and then brought into the community and reflected within the community. But I, I meet so many people and I know I've done this myself to to almost make an idol of community in that, um, a sense of self and, and not saying that any of us are doing anything wrong. I mean, I think it's just part of how we're wired to, to kind of learn through, connection and projection and all of that, but to, uh, to be under the illusion that you belong because you belong to a community, uh, can really set you up to really take a hard fall. If something gets, um, disrupted in that community, whether it's just not meeting because of a pandemic or whether it's just realizing that you no longer fit there ideologically or theologically or, or otherwise. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that, Tony, because I think it's I th- I just think that's huge both directions. Like on the one hand, bringing that kind that level of expectation into a community that of of uh just bringing that level of need, I I think is uh that is is it, that can be damaging to the community on one hand because I just think when you're not able to self-soothe at all and looking for other people to kind of fix you in some kind of way. I know that I've come in in that kind of jagged place into community where uh, I know that's not particularly healthy for the people around me. But as you said, the, the other direction, I just think we, and I feel like there's not nearly enough talk about that. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it, it's interesting too, especially in a time where with social media and all of that, and I know these, all these realities are changing our brains faster than we know, but we live in a time of so much, connectivity, I just think to even like meaningfully explore those questions of what does it mean to be connected within oneself and to be content and to be satisfied and to be like to for for me to feel okay just being me. And I think, you know, for those of us who have had background like in certain kinds of toxic theology, even that sounds like a kind of heresy. Well, I can't be okay just being me, you know, as if that would be an indictment, you know, on uh, the community or on the church or something like it's, it's being a bad person to be 
to, to be complete and whole within oneself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's so much theology that really forbids that, um, sees it as na- navel-gazing or um, somehow being not true or maybe uh, too centered in ego or something like that. Um, and that does seem to leave people feeling like, uh, like there's no anchor when things, um, get really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I'm thinking about what's, you know, I know we all have multiple lenses theologically, but especially around justice, um, at least my experience of you. It, it, so the way that I experience you is, is, is similar to how I experience uh, my friend Jason McAnally, who's who's a pastor um, in Nashville, and it's I, I'm reminded of like the six year old in me that that knew God before too much theology was poured all over that mm. and had to be sorted out. But especially around justice, um, like it almost feels like you're the kid that had the experience of God and really believed it. Um, and, and kind of took the teachings in, in a way that just kind of made you aware of behavioral inconsistencies, um, not just, you know, individually, but as a collective, you know, how we can, as groups veer away from, uh, a Jesus way of life and call it Christian the whole way (laughs) at every step, you know, and, uh, I'm wondering what what that experience has been like for you. You know, as I think we all kind of wrestle with calling out things in the collective because we're aware of our individual stuff, you know, and and we feel like maybe too much shame or, or we're just not wanting to shoot bullets out and have them come back at us or whatever. Um, but you do have a way of calling the church up instead of out. And I'm wondering, you know, again, for those out there who are kind of stuck in anger, right now or uh rejecting uh those that rejected them or or just somehow you know in a part of the process that's painful and feels pretty stuck and uh and might have even kind of felt like they've been there for an extended amount of time but it's kind of become the new normal for them and uh i'm wondering if you have any words uh for them around how to um, or, or kind of what that process has been like for you and, and maybe one way, uh, that that might be able to resolve into something more life-giving. Hmm. Well, well, man, Tony, I mean, I think, you know, on the one hand, I, I would want to say right out of the gate there that of course there's no, that I have no judgment for people who are, in a place of anger, even bitterness. I understand that sometimes that's just, that's just part of the journey. And um, sometimes I think we have, especially like emotionally, you kind of have to be where you are and there's no fast forwarding to it. So I certainly get that. I mean, I think for me, um, and I, I loved your description, Tony. I mean, it's, it really is true that I had these experiences of God that I cherished from when I was, like really, really young, and uh, never stopped believing in those things. Also, and I've been writing about this a good bit lately, I've been sort of tracing some of those earliest experiences of 
friends of mine and people that I knew and was close to that challenged the narrative of the world as it was given to me. And that started actually when I was also when I was really, really young. So I think I started grappling with that pretty early. And so in some ways, I think, you know, that that sort of tension has been there all my life. And, you know, I, I think on some level for me, it was and not to um, to oversimplify this, but growing up as a Pentecostal tradition, uh, Pentecostal Christian, and there is no Pentecostalism without the black church. I think in, in a lot of ways, um, Pentecostalism at its core is, is a black church expression. So you just kind of follow that line. It's sort of the intersection of black church and Wesleyanism. And there's a lot of justice, you know, kind of in that mix. So I think somehow I got convinced very early on that the real Jesus always was an oppressed Jesus among oppressed people and that this other version was the fake one. And, and it just didn't seem that, 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 that even though the other one seemed to be the more dominant narrative, that that was what was co-opted, that that was what was false. And I think that it kind of, I had this sort of fierce sense of kind of like, well, no, like, Nobody gets to take Jesus away from me. Nobody gets to take the Bible away from me. Just like this is what's out there, even if it's more mainstream, that's the deviation. You know, that's that's what this is. This is just not what's what's true and real. Um, So I think I had sort of a, a a firm conviction of that pretty early on. But I think in terms of like how to how to channel any of that or to be constructive with it. (laughs) This might sound like a really wild swing here. So uh, forgive me if this, if this just completely misses, but I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, you know, when I read and I have been thinking about uh, the gospels a lot these days, specifically because we're in a time where I feel like I've seen so many people who I thought of as good people in quotation marks. And I, and I say goodness in the sense that I've seen them on an individual level, be uh, empathetic, be caring, be compassionate, even to people who are very much unlike them. But I see them caught up in these systems of thinking and these patterns of thinking uh, caught up in these cultures that have been created around them or created for them. Sometimes online spaces, sometimes through social media, where they seem so brainwashed, where they seem so unable to acknowledge human suffering around them, or maybe the suffering of individuals, they're just not able to connect into any sort of a larger story. And in a way where it's like, well, what's wrong? It's like these folks are under a spell. And the more I think about that, the more it makes me think about in the gospel narratives, this whole business of demons and Jesus casting evil spirits out of people. Uh, And, you know, famous stories like the one in Mark five, where Jesus cast out the legion of demons. And I know all that stuff has been weaponized and used in ways that have been very uh, unhelpful in terms of mental health and all that. But for me, the where it's, where it's actually is very helpful right now is this, is that if evil does in fact exist in systemic forms and in systemic realities, then I find it to be kind of a helpful construct as a way of separating, okay, what the things that might be influencing this person 
or might be uh, moving this person or even this whole community is not who they are. There's still a person underneath there. <laughs> there is a kind of spell that's happening there, but that's not this person. And and so these days I actually kind of need to cling to that because what I can't believe, and I don't think it would be helpful to believe, is that folks are somehow, I don't know, just choosing to be wicked or choosing conscientiously to ignore the suffering of others. So I've, I've found like kind of in this weird way, I'm kind of channeling that kind of ideology in kind of what can feel like, I'm sure for some people now, the opposite direction of kind of like, no, this is exactly what I'm reading about in places like Mark 5 is that they're, this is these are people who are being shaped by a legion of voices right now that are that are that are screaming and that are dominating them, but it's not who they are. And there is an identity underneath. And and to see even that there's actually no one who's more oppressed than the oppressor, that these folks are actually captive themselves. And I think sometimes to think that way is the only way that we're able to have compassion and empathy, especially towards people where we felt a lot of rejection. Mm. Man, I love that. You, you reminded me of uh, Thomas Burton saying, you know, if, if you, I'm paraphrasing, but if you, if you really want to do the work, try to convince free people that they're the slaves. Yeah. Oh my, <laughs> yeah. I love that quote. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. You, God, there's so many, so many uh, directions I could go with that, but I, I love the way that, um, that you talked about a legion of voices and, and, and it kind of goes back to the chaos you were talking about earlier um, when we first started sense of like, there's, there's constant input from every direction. I've, you know, I've literally seen people uh, slip into psychosis mm. um, here in my practice where, you know, people who have functioned well all their lives uh, who are not um, mentally ill per se, but circumstantially ill in that maybe they've lost their job uh, or their small business is tanked and, all of the pressures uh, along with uh, tons of time on the internet and these black holes and conspiracy theories and stuff, just literally uh, I've seen it have people lose contact with reality where they're actually paranoid, uh, distrustful of their spouse and their children. And just the sense of like, you can feel how the collective madness uh, is there and it'd be really easy. You know, we're all so fragile, really easy for any of us to kind of slip off into, into that sea to some degree. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I love, I love how you, you talk about the, the powers and principalities, if you will. And I've, I've wondered for a while if, you know, powers and principalities aren't just these sort of forces, you know, in the heavens, if you will, but if, if, if our, our thought life, maybe our powers and our, our, our emotional life contains some principalities, you know, like maybe, maybe our inner world, you know, ha- has a lot of stuff going on there as well. And, oh, totally, uh, totally. Yeah. I think it's like the inner world and then like, you know, and I even think, and I don't mean this to be too literal, but even the way Paul uses that language of the prince of the power of the air. So I think like if you combine, if it's possible for those powers and principalities to exist within us, and then you combine that with that level of like constant input. Because what I find is, okay, even when people kind of fall into the black hole, 
in a direction in which I have not. Who among us does not know what it's like, uh, you know, trying to escape some kind of hurt or pain to cling to something like that or some, even if it's like the kind of um, just doomsday scrolling or whatever. I think everybody knows what it is to kind of get lost in the vortex in some form. So like we know something of what it's like to get very uh, over the edge or close to it precisely because there's just a lot of, a lot of hurt and pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, and it seems like, you know, in, in my reading, the, the gospel seemed to without, always saying seem to always be pointing back to primary core identity, mm-hmm. you know, and like a lot of this, uh, is, you know, powers and principalities for lack of a better, uh, word, um, is the sense of loyalty conflicts and allegiances to people, places, things, groups, ideas, mm-hmm. ideologies. And, uh, that really seems to be, what's ripping a lot of families apart right now, uh, and congregations, you know, and I'm pretty hard on, on pastors that I know, (laughs) you know, but as I see them trying to navigate that tension and maybe, you know, in my perception, they're being a little too avoidant or catering to one side or the other, that sort of thing. But, uh, but man, what an impossible task to try to hold insanity together, (laughs) you know, in some way. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm wondering about, you know, in the, in the midst of that, um, what core identity is for you? Like, what's the, what's the touchstone that you return to when the chaos, um, is kind of at its max? Now, see, Tony, I told you that one way or the other, this was going to end up being free therapy for me. (laughs) (laughs) Just have to think through these questions. Uh, You know, I think for me, what it always comes down to, and and you've gestured this direction already, but I think that this whole idea of being God's beloved is way more essential for me than anything else. Like that's kind of the, the thing beneath the thing. That's the, that's the kernel of truth. That's the thing that always has to run deeper than any sort of vocation. I'm not a writer. I'm not a a speaker. I'm not, you know, a pastor or podcaster or whatever. Like this is who I am. I actually, um, we hadn't talked about this, but I had a really interesting experience actually because uh, just this past week, because I was I was in Charlotte for just a couple of days. I mean, with things being what they are, we kept it very low key. I just, literally just saw my mom and dad, but I was um, the there's a bakery in Charlotte that's Novus Bakery that people who if they've connected with some of the other stuff I've done, I talk about it. I feel like kind of all the time, and it's it's been around for 27 years. And that somehow became identified in my mind. I used to live in that part of town. I would ride my bike there. And that was around the time that I kind of reconnected with these early experiences I had of riding my bike when I was a kid uh, and first kind of being awake to joy and wonder and what I now think of as being the presence of God, even though I didn't know that at the time. And, And all of that was really magical for me. And I had this sense of even after I moved away from North Carolina, that whenever I get, I got back to that particular spot of earth, when I get back to that, to Nova's bakery, that everything's okay. And that I'm okay. Because that spot came to 
represent for me like well okay this this mean this is the place where i know that i'm loved and that i'm held and which i know sounds very silly but but really i mean even the little things i mean it's actually a bakery and if you think about like in the prayer jesus gave us to pray that we've been praying for two thousand years uh give us this day our daily bread and uh the Wi-Fi password there is uh, Fresh Bread Daily. And it just, it became the place that kind of represented all that for me. And in the midst of the pandemic and all that, uh, the bakery's shutting down. <laughs> and like, uh, like, uh, like December 13th or something. And I went there and I just kind of sat for a while. And I was kind of having to sort through this because it's kind of like, wow, okay, so this is the place that's been the biggest touchstone for me of, where I always feel like I can feel gathered and be reminded of who I am most essentially. And that's going away. And <laughs> it almost felt like a, you know, a bad omen or something. Like, does this mean that God will not provide? Does this mean I will not remember who I am? And it turned out actually to be, I think, a really important experience of how, you know, even though that's been important and that's been a, a, you know, a beautiful spot for me. And I actually kind of felt like the spirit was dealing with me that in a way that I haven't felt for a long time, just kind of the sense of going deeper, like, well, yeah, I mean, of course this has been an important place. And like you, we read in the first Testament, you know, you, you pile your rocks together and build an altar and, you know, say this is holy ground and that's great. But, you know, it always was something deeper than that. It never really was about that place. Really. It, there was, it was always something bigger. And I don't know, I just kind of feel like the further I go, the more I keep having to do that is realizing that the identity stuff always has to run deeper than any relationship, than any place, any patch of soil, than any community. (laughs) And the further we go and the more that we lose things and we lose people, the more I think we're pushed to have to to really tap into that. Mm. Yes, I love that. Does it ever surprise you that you uh, have become somewhat of a um, voice or a pastor to those that are in the wilderness? Do you ever wonder how you got there? And, um, you know, I guess it probably wasn't your initial plan, um, but it's kind of where the spirits led. What at this point in your journey, what what do you make of that? <laughs> I never know what to make of it because, no, I, I didn't aspire to it, not because, um, and, I, and not like kind of an ego way, only more in the sense, because actually I feel like all of my favorite people, uh, all of my deepest relationships, all of those have been forged in the wilderness. And I think you know, I, I, that's actually been a huge shift in my life because, and I understand where we get this, you know, I think sort of my most primary Sunday school understanding of the wilderness is the wilderness is a bad place. You don't want to go there. And the wilderness is a place of disobedience and punishment and rebellion. And I never will forget the first time I ran across that verse in Hosea where God, uh, actually right after this pronouncement of judgment, which by the way, like it always is in the prophets, it's a pronouncement of judgment based on injustice. It's not because they were naughty. It's because they were, uh, you know, trampling on the poor. And, but right after God pronounces these, these judgments that all of a sudden the text shifts and there's this beautiful, uh, section where God talks about how he's going to take his people back out in the wilderness 
to woo them and to romance them. And Eugene Peterson, the, mes- the message actually says, I'll take you back out in the wilderness where we had our first date. And mm. so, I, you know, there's been such a shift in how I understand and, and think about the wilderness. And it's like, oh, well, this, here's, where, here's where God is. And here's where the really beautiful people are. So it's like, on the one hand, I'm really, really grateful for it because I like I like people better out here. I like the authenticity of the relationships. I like the wildness of it and all that. I think where it can be a little funny sometimes is I'm just very I'm just very self-aware that I'm I mean I'm a 6 foot 5 white guy that comes from a certain kind of Christianity and I you know I I just know that in some ways that maybe that's never going to make me feel like a likely person to be trying to pastor anybody or be a spiritual guide or companion to anybody in these kind of wilderness spaces. But I find it to be, you know, just, uh, just, just tremendous, tremendous grace, uh, to be able to be there. But yeah, I would definitely say it's a, it's a surprise. And I think it's, it's a surprise to me and for my friends who, uh, kind of trust me in any way or walk with me in those spaces. I feel like it, it probably is a surprise to them too. So, <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a sort of a, a Johnny Cashness about it, if you will. <laughs> you know, there's a there's a uh, there, there there's two BBTs in my life: Barbara Brown Taylor and Billy Bob Thornton. Yes, <laughs> that's <laughs> it's amazing. Like, that's the mi- that's the mixture, right? I mean, that's. <laughs> that's like whatever the whatever the middle of that spectrum is. I think that's maybe where Jonathan Martin is. <laughs> <laughs> I really want that. I, I want that on my tombstone. I love, love, I'd love to be in that intersection. Please, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but but one of the ways that it, that it, you know what's coming to mind as I say that is the way that you you still use language like you know the sp- where the spirit leads or you talk about the Holy Spirit a lot and you know I've noticed that some circles see it seems like some circles and sometimes especially in progressive circles i think most especially in progressive circles that language is seen as either archaic on the one end uh or regressive in some way or on the other end uh they just relegate it to the mystics and the richard roars and the contemplatives of the world and it's this unobtainable thing out there somewhere and it seems like that 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 type of connection to the divine that and that sense of being led and you, you know you have to be pretty connected to be led <laughs> you know it seems to get lost in that mix so that's that's one of the things i appreciate you keeping alive and bringing in to to new spaces because uh it just seems so important not to lose you know primacy um and and um yeah, I, I, has that been a struggle for you to 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 be you in those ways in certain circles? Well, I mean, it's a it's a struggle in a way in that I definitely feel like it's not always welcomed. Uh, in a way, it can only be so much of a struggle because I feel like I don't have any alternatives exactly other than to be who I am. You know, I really say this in the most truly non-judgmental way possible. But my because I feel like at this stage of my life, I'm surrounded by so many progressive people that I admire who are doing 
deeply good work. But what I find is that while I think, and, and if, and I know, you know, we use these labels and, and, and words in so many different ways, but if by progressive, what we mean is that there's kind of a basic, there's a through line of being awake to issues of justice and equality and um, human dignity for all people. I mean, I think all of that is good and right, certainly, and certainly as it connects to policy and all that. But my observation has been, and this is what I mean, most non-judgmental way possible, is that it doesn't seem like progressive culture necessarily makes, forms healthier people, more connected people, people or healthier souls. And I don't think that's a, uh, a judgment on like that somehow the ideology is wrong or that the values are wrong. I think what it is, is the same that it is in hyper conservative culture is that without practices that shape your soul and form your soul and kind of tether you to the ground, then, well, it doesn't really matter what you think about much of anything. It doesn't really matter that much what your ostensible values are if your soul isn't cared for in some ways. So I think that's where I find myself always wanting to kind of gently um, kind of insist on that and where I feel like I can't help but, I don't know, at least try to find a way to bring those things together is because like, yes, like justice and equality and human dignity. But part of it for me is just as simple, uh, Tony, is that I feel like uh, not just in my life, but the lives of people around me and people, activists that I know around me, I actually feel like doing that kind of work in the world with all the obstacles that are out there, I think the resistance to it is so fierce and the obstacles are so many. I just feel like if you don't have some way of being connected to some kind of larger reality, some larger sense of God or spirit or or or, or some kind of like spiritual practices, I just think you burn out. I just think you burn yourself out and you end up getting cynical and you're not sustained to do the work, which is not a way of saying, of course, that anybody like, you know, that that if you're not a religious person or something in some way that you're not uh, uh, valid. But, you know, I find even people who are not overtly religious are still at some point along the way going to carve out some really deep practices to sustain them. Because I just think, again, that kind of work is so taxing. So that's just where I find like in progressive spaces, um, I just think we need a lot more of. And I know it's not always going to be the most popular thing because understandably, there's going to be a certain kind of reactivity to, and especially for people for whom faith and faith systems has been synonymous with um, homophobia, bigotry. Uh, Islamophobia, uh, whatever mm-hmm. it might be, uh, when it's synonymous with uh, kind of the systems and structures that uh, have, have have they've seen cause hurt and pain in their own lives or the lives of others, it's understandable that there'd be a kind of reactivity towards that. But it seems like coming to some kind of place of integration is is just kind of necessary to move the whole human story forward somehow. Mm, yeah. Which which brings you led right up to my next question. You know, in the in the fewest words possible, how would you define religious abuse or religious trauma? Ooh. 
in the fewest words possible, I think I would define religious abuse or religious trauma really as any experience of in the name of God or religious community that goes against your deepest sense of self. I think the fewest words, I think that's what I'd say. Like whatever your Mm -hmm. deepest, truest sense of self is. If Mm -hmm. you've been part of a community where that felt violated, where you were told in essence, don't trust yourself, listen to me. And that's, that was the messaging that for me always ends in some form of religious, religious trauma. Mm. Yeah. And what would you say is, is the consequence of staying in that? We, we've talked some about the consequence of leaving and the, the sense of being in the desert and all of that, but what happens to that core self if, uh, if it never really gets a reprieve from that messaging? Well, I, it, it seems to me, and it's been my experience, I think that when you, when you don't ever leave those kind of systems, that that core self just never quite comes, like gets above ground enough to ever really develop and grow um, to where there's never even really a coherent sense of self because inevitably you end up still looking to external sources to tell you who you are because that your understanding is that's what you're supposed to do. And that's how the world's supposed to work is that you're supposed to look to external sources to tell you who you are. So I think what that always leads to is a kind of disorientation and a kind of fragmentation. And, and I think especially even, but I think though, even for those of us who decide to be really good foot soldiers in that there's like this low grade hum of disillusionment because somewhere deep down, we recognize that we're just not in alignment, that all of us isn't moving in the same direction, precisely because that true self hasn't has not really been given permission or space um, to 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 get out into the air and the light and to grow and to flourish and to develop. But I think until that happens, then we end up just feeling fragmented and like all these different parts of ourselves are kind of being farmed out because that's exactly what's actually happening. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Th- so th- thank you for all this. Um, I- I'm going to lead up to, uh, to this short series of questions to close out with, but uh, th- thank you so much for sharing all of that. I know there's, there's a lot of people out there listening that really are going to benefit uh, and probably most of them already do. Uh, from your work, but uh, I love having this conversation where, um, you know, so often I'm hearing you ask the questions. <laughs> yeah. So it's great to hear you be able to to respond to the types of questions that you often ask. So thank you again for that. Um, well, thank so you for the opportunity, po- Tony. This is so good for me. I love it. Yeah, I do too. So the uh, last series of questions, uh, one if you just had to name one thing, one exchange, one experience, um, out of all the multiple answers that would surely fit, um, who or what made you who you are? 
<laughs> mm. Wow, what a great question. Um, uh, I guess I still think on some, in some weird way that being on about the third row playing with my superpowers action figures on the pew while listening to people shout and speak in tongues um <laughs> while I was playing but t- but absorbing it all in and um uh, having my action figures preach to each other and lay hands on each other and then kind of reenacting all that I think I became who I am somehow in the midst of that it's largely how I came to be. Wow. About what age was that? Probably like, you know, three or four. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Uh, what brings you the most joy right now? Hmm. What brings me the most joy right now? Um, I feel like this... Well, I mean, I guess joy, because joy is such an important word to me in this moment. I think that I experience the world as being so noisy right now that any time again that I'm able to kind of get any kind of quiet from that, it's so it's so cherished and so rare. So uh, no more than I do it, I feel like reading authentically brings me joy. <laughs> getting lost in a really good film with when my electronic devices are turned off really brings me joy. I think any experience of, you know, kind of, and again, for all the other connections I make that are important online, I think those are so needed and so real. But I think when I'm not feeling pulled in other directions and I feel like I'm able to be fully present to the people I love, that brings me, that brings me joy right now. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You know, your, your earlier answers reminding me, I'm thinking about my own answer to, to the question about what makes, makes you who you are. And I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but, uh, my grandmother, uh, that I went to church with as a kid was, uh, was Pentecostal. And, uh, there is something about those early experiences I'll never forget as well. Um, it's, it's obviously not a tradition I'm a part of now, but I have, have deep respect for. Mm. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, man, the soulfulness of, you know, God, she would make peanut brittle in the kitchen and sell it for the church and, uh, you know, bring her tambourine to church. And there's just something about those, uh, the open expression of emotion mm. that um, that's not present in a lot of white churches. And I think yes. it goes back to what you said about the roots in the black church. Uh, Cause that's been my experience uh, in, in going to funerals of black and white people as well, that white people don't know how to grieve so well. I, I don't know if we, if we know how to access emotion fully well, um, you know, relatively speaking. So yeah. And that brings me to my next question. Um, what grieves you the most right now? Hmm. The thing that grieves me the most right now, it's funny that maybe this one comes to mind the quickest is that it feels like that 
in this political climate mixed with social media that those kinds of those kind of ideological affiliations are more important and more defining for people than biological family or really any other kind of sense of of meaningful community in a way that I just find to be deeply sad, like that you trust the account or trust the experience of people from far off who just kind of validate the way that you see the world than people who are right under your nose who experience the world in a different way. I find that to just, I, I just find that to be unendingly tragic. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I've experienced that myself and um, taking hard stances, you know, wh- where I've been geographically in the South, you know, a- about race and um, same sex love and things like that and how it is easy to get caught up in, uh, you know, wanting to be connected to those who are suffering, but also uh, sort of lose a, a full grasp of the humanity of the people right around you that maybe raised you or that you grew up around. Yeah, mm. absolutely. So two more questions. Uh, one, how has your concept of God evolved over the years and where are you now? <laughs> Where am I now generally? <laughs> well, just, uh, you know, what's, how, how is that? Uh, let me think of a better way to, to frame that. Um, so how is, how has your concept of God evolved over the years and, and what's that walk feel like now? You know, you've talked about going from, and I'm, I'm not using your language, but the sense of, uh, growth and maturity and deepening into your faith in a way that sounds, you know, connected, spirit led and experiential. And, and, uh, just wondering like what that feels like for you right now in this moment. Well, uh, my way of seeing God has evolved so much. I mean, I think the one thing that has remained the same is that I think on some level, on a more intuitive level, I think there's a way that I always knew that God is love. I think there was a part of me that believed that, but I think that was so mixed up with these other ideas of God as um, that God was kind of capricious and arbitrary. Well, and just, and more than anything, just punitive, retributive, that, that God was just, just retributive. And, and I live so much of my life in fear. I think the biggest way my view of God has evolved is coming from believing that God is punitive and retributive to coming to really believing that God is love and only love and that, uh, you know, cause it, which by the way, does it mean that I don't think there's kind of like a fire to that love? I mean, I was thinking about that some this weekend and how I feel like, you know, 
love experience from a posture of resistance can feel like a kind of torment. Um, it can be painful. It's painful to be loved from a place of resistance, but it's still love. And I think God's only posture towards human beings is one of love. So that for me has been what's changed absolutely everything. And I think in terms of like where I am now, um, I just think I'm, I'm much more mindful and aware of this idea of God being present in all places and in all things. Uh, you know, I still don't have any problems with the idea of sacred space or I mean, I think actually what can be really good about sacred spaces or sacred things is that it can teach us how to reverence um, all spaces and all things. But that's unfortunately not often how it works. And so uh, I think what I'm finding myself still trying to do now is to try to welcome that sense of the divine wherever I am and to understand that there really isn't any part of my life or of my being that's not in touch with that divine presence or is that somehow outside of that gaze or is dirty somehow or profane somehow or whatever. Like that's, that's the place I'm trying to really live into now. And there's still, you know, I have my moments of course, where I feel like I will regress in some form, but that's definitely the, the trajectory is trying to really live in that reality. Hmm. Yeah. And so as we wrap up, um, Right now in this moment, not yesterday or tomorrow, but just kind of whatever's on your heart right now, uh, what's your wisdom for a hurting world? Hmm. <laughs> wisdom for a hurting world. You know, um, I think the closest thing to, to any wisdom that I'm finding <laughs> from a place of hurt and for hurting people. Um, you know, I just feel like in every experience of my life, and it still happens, every time that I am in pain, then it's always instinctive to retreat. It's all, I always go inward. I always go interior. I always, um, you know, kind of self-isolate in some form. And I just think that what we all need more of right now, and I think it takes great courage and, um, again, no judgment when you're not able to do that, but I think that loving anybody, loving anything does always involve a certain kind of risk and involves putting yourself back out there and involves a kind of tenderness that means that even while you are still hurting and while you are still in pain and while you are still, you know, feeling all the things that you're feeling, that you still engage the world with your whole self in a way that's fully present. And I think that what I see uh, with so many of us right now is that precisely because a lot of things inside of us are stirred up, there's a temptation to, well, maybe if I can just kind of, um, and, and I'm all for any and all seasons of solitude, reflect, reflection, retreat, whatever. But this idea that I kind of need to abstain from any kind of real engagement with the world until everything is fixed and sorted. And that's just not going to happen. I think it's actually the people who are most aware 
of the ways that they are that they are in pain and are and are kind of in touch with that that we need to really be engaging. So I would just the, the, the closest thing to wisdom I would offer is whatever it is that causes you to feel hurt or broken is to understand that rather than that disqualifying you somehow is what a resource that that is to keep you tender and uh, to keep your heart open and how much we need people to engage the world um, who who are very much aware of the fact that they are that they're in process and how much healing I think comes to us when we do that, how often I think it is actually that it's not until we make ourselves available and even make our wounds available um, as a resource for others that somehow light and healing is able to get into us. Mm, that's a word. <laughs> <laughs> you might want to consider preaching. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're pushing me in that direction, Tony. This is so, I love this, man. I love this conversation. This is so soulful. This is what I needed. I, I'm serious. This is healing for my own spirit right now. You know, to get yeah. practicing what I preach in these ways is always the hardest, but I do believe it. You know, I do believe that putting ourselves out there in that kind of risky, vulnerable place is, is worth it. Yeah. Well, Matt, thank you so much for this. Um, I've loved this time. I love you and uh, I appreciate you. Hey, I love you too, Fred. What a beautiful conversation. I'm so grateful we got to do this. It's really, really yeah. awesome. Yeah. I was wondering if you'd close us out. You know, uh, 48 hours or so ago, we found out that our mutual friend, Jackie Lewis's church, Middle Collegiate Church in New York City, burned down. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was wondering if you might just close us out with a prayer uh, specifically for Jackie and for the brothers and sisters at Middle Collegiate Church. Yeah. Oh, I'd love that. that, And that is heavy on my heart for sure. So, God, we're just. um, We're just our hearts are heavy right now because we're we're just very aware of our sister, our friend, the Reverend Jackie Lewis and of this beautiful community of Middle Collegiate Church, what a witness that community is for everything that we've talked about today. Um, a place that's tender and inclusive and prophetic. And we just know that the world is in such deep need of that kind of witness right now. But deeper than that, these are just these are our friends. These are people in distant community with us who are hurting right now. And we just want to pray for the peace of the Holy Spirit, for the comfort to come, uh, to bind up those wounds. We pray for financial provision. Uh, we pray for safety for everybody who's involved in that uh, re- recovery and rebuilding process. And we just pray for your hand to be so strongly on that community that you have raised up and that you've breathed such life into that you would give wisdom to Reverend Jackie and to all the leadership there. And that somehow in the way that you have always used her and always used them, that even in the midst of this crisis, that there, that the voice of that community that is so needed right now would only be amplified because I know that it is a community that testifies of love and of justice and of truth. And we just pray just a a covering over each of them and a protection. And again, just especially just that you would 
comfort their hearts and that you would hold them especially close. And we just commend them to you, God, who is creator, father, son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to episode 20 of the Voices of Wisdom podcast. If you'd like to know more about Jonathan Martin, you can find him at jonathanmartinwords.com. You can also find him on Twitter at the boy on the bike and on Instagram at Jonathan A. Martin. I can't recommend his two books highly enough. Those are available everywhere books are sold. If you like what you're hearing here at the Voices of Wisdom podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. If there's someone in particular that you'd like to hear me interview, drop me a line and let me know. We have some more amazing guests coming up that I'm really excited about, so stay tuned for the next episode of Voices of Wisdom. I've seen American flowers